Who are they? How did they get here? And where are they now? I'm Tyson Chastain, Director of Alumni Relations with Johnson University, and this is the Sojournal Podcast. The Sojournal Podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University and is brought to you by the Alumni Association. Whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association to help encourage and equip alumni and students as they prepare and pursue kingdom-focused vocations. Learn more at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. Today, we're joined on the Sojournal Podcast by 1992 Johnson University, Tennessee graduate, Mike Luzatter. Mike, welcome to the Sojournal Podcast. Well, thank you, Tyson. It's good to be here. Well, I'm glad you agreed to join us for this podcast. So for those who don't know who you are, would you mind uh, just kind of giving a general introduction? Uh, Yeah. So I'm a campus minister. And part of that is my experience. I graduated from high school and went immediately to the local university, had every intention of being rich and famous, and was derailed from that through the campus ministry experience that I found. I transferred into Johnson then after my sophomore year. And uh, my whole intention from then was to find a niche in campus ministry that I could serve. So we were in Evansville, Indiana for about five years. So we've been in Johnson City, Tennessee now for uh, 21. So when you were in Evansville, Indiana, were you at Evansville University? I was not. I was at the University of Southern Indiana. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is just over on the west side there. They used to call it West Side High School. And it was sort of the the local community college Mm -hmm. in the beginning that really has grown its own legs recently. And it's a pretty good university right now. Huh. And not by my doing, though. <laughs> when you uh, you said you're in Johnson City, Tennessee, so you are at East Tennessee State University, is that right? East Tennessee State University, that's right. All right. We are the Buccaneers, for some reason, caught up in the mountains of Appalachia. <laughs> yeah, that sounds exactly like where a Buccaneer should be, right there in the in the hills. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, you said that you originally went to college at your local college. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you a Christian when you went into college? Yeah. In fact, I've got to tell you, I was, I was dragged to church the very first Sunday that I was born. Uh, that was just a bit of part of my growing up. And uh, I think like most people who attended Bible college when I did, they were just dragged there. That was a part of their experience. And then it became old after a while. It became something that was my parents and not mine and something that I really did not own and didn't desire at the time. Going to the university was my... <laughs> minor rebellion against my dad. I would never have gone all the way and rebelled against my dad because he would have crushed me. (laughs) But this was my way of saying, you know, I can do what I need to do. I go to Bible college, which was what he had intended for me. He intended on you going to Bible college. So was he a Bible college graduate himself? Absolutely not. No. (laughs) He he was an old redneck from West Virginia who, through family circumstances, ended up at the university. And because he didn't want to go back to redneck West Virginia, he signed up for the Marines in the early 60s and went to Vietnam a couple times, uh, was an officer. He had no Bible college experience, but a couple of key individuals from Johnson way back in the day uh, intercepted him in different spots during his Marine Corps career. And so Johnson had always had this idyllic position in his mind as to the best Christians come from Johnson. And that really is what we used to say because of these two or three individuals that he had known who probably graduated in the late 40s, I'm, I'm guessing. Do you have any idea who they were? Yeah, uh, Littered Lutz was one of them. Uh, he was a small town preacher. He was in South Carolina at the time. I think my dad was a Paris Island, although I'm not positive if that's true. Um, Dean Davis was one of those that I, I don't remember where he met Dean 
and Judy, but they were part of his history. Uh, ben Lutz was a part of that as well. Ben was an administrator at Johnson when I was there, but he and my dad had had a relationship long before that. So those three key individuals all had Johnson ties. Wow. And so they, they sort of convinced your dad that Johnson was a pretty cool place to be. So he had you tagged to come here. He did. And that's true. And I chose not to, <laughs> not at the beginning, at least at the beginning, I really just wanted, I wanted to stretch my own legs, I suppose. Um, but God wouldn't have it. I think, I think that this really was about God getting a hold of me and reorienting my priorities. You know, sometimes that's what it takes is, uh, is for you to try and make your steps on your own for, for you to, you know, for, well, for us to allow God to interject and make clear that he's got a little bit of a different plan. I think um, that's true. So you said that your faith was not your own, that it was mostly the faith of your parents when you decided to go to university. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So I began at Eastern Illinois University in 1987, uh, sort of just coasting on being a good person and thinking that that was what Christianity was about. And I'm not sure that I was married to the to the idea that I needed to be a good person, but I was moving along in that direction, at least thinking that that probably meant good things for me at the end. So it was your uh, campus ministry experience then that really made faith your own? Yeah, I was dared to go to the campus ministry. And because of the community there, it changed my life. Uh, we had a great campus minister who was a good preacher, a good Bible scholar. But what held me there were, were my peers hmm. and just living in and around them, the conversations we would have late at night. That was what impressed me the most. It was just not something I'd seen in in peers when I grew up in high school. And just having that those people around me was important. So was the campus house there at the school that you went to a, uh, a restoration-affiliated campus house? Yep, sure was. Uh, and I'm not even sure why I was dared to go to that one, but it ended up being the restoration ministry that I'd grown up in. Uh, so it, I wasn't leaving one group for the next. And, and I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. You know, I don't know what, if I'd walked into the BCM, the Baptist Christian ministry, my life might've been really different, but I didn't. Wow. Uh, yeah. So the campus minister at Eastern Illinois University, um, was he a graduate of any of our schools? He was. Uh, Roger Songer had graduated from, he graduated from St. Louis Christian College, I believe, or else he started there and then finished at Lincoln. And then he had done some graduate work, maybe even completed his master's degree at Trinity up in Chicago. But he was from actually the town next over from me in Newton, Illinois. He was from there. And so he and I had just a, the association of growing up in the same place, 20 years removed, I suppose. Mm. Okay. So how many years were you at Eastern Illinois? Just two. My freshman and sophomore year were at Eastern. And really after my freshman year, I knew that I, I knew that I wasn't going to be there long. And I had dallied with the whole idea of transferring to Bible college and probably just wasn't man enough to concede it yet. But my whole second year at Eastern, I really grew leaps and bounds. I'm grateful that I stayed that long, but my faith came, became a lot more matured to that. So I transferred into Johnson going into my third year of school. Mm. Did you have any other consideration of a Christian university aside from Johnson or was it once you made that decision that was? Uh, there was nobody else really on the radar, Tyson. And I, I looked at Cincinnati and Lincoln simply because they were nearby. But at that time in my life, even though I was headed to a Christian school, I wanted to be far enough away to do my own thing. And because Johnson had this reputation with my parents, 
they weren't going to argue against it. So it was sort of a win-win maybe for everybody. <laughs> you sort of looked at Lincoln, sort of looked at Cincinnati. I mean, did you physically go to those campuses or did you just like, I don't know, I guess there wasn't an internet at the time. How did you sort of look at them? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that I physically visited them. I think that I probably had visited both of those campuses while I was growing up in high school in youth group and stuff like that for various reasons. But I did not visit them before I made my decision to go to Johnson. So that really wasn't, they weren't in a consideration realistically at all for me. Mm. That sounds very much like me. That's sort of why I was asking is it's like when I decided I was going to Bible college, I threw out applications to Lincoln and Cincinnati and Johnson, but I didn't even look at the other two. I just went straight to Johnson because that was what was recommended to me. Yeah. In my opinion, this is just the way it was perceived by me was that Johnson had this really elevated education system and it was in the mountains. And so A and B went together and you just, you couldn't get any better than that. Um, both of my brothers actually graduated from Lincoln. They're younger than me, but a university in a cornfield, no offense to Lincoln grads. It just did not seem interesting to me. I grew up in a cornfield. I just wasn't interested in, in staying there. So when you were at Eastern Illinois University, what was your focus or had you declared one? Yeah, I started in engineering uh, my freshman year. I switched to math by my second year, really, so I could, uh, I suppose, take classes that would, would transfer better. So I came in Johnson with all kinds of calc and physics and chemistry and stuff like that that uh, just got thrown away. So you didn't have to take preacher math? Uh, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> so when you came to Johnson then, what was your focus? Well, campus ministry was not a major that Johnson offered then or now, I suppose. Uh, and really, I think there were five. And preaching was the only thing that made sense to me. If I wanted the, uh, a career in campus ministry, it seemed to me that preaching would be the, what I would, would want to do. So that, that was a really an easy, an easy fit. I hung out at the campus ministry at, at the University of Tennessee. That was my place of worship while I was at Johnson. And my idea was just to get as much experience and understanding as I could. Sam Darden became a really good friend of mine while I was there. And there were a couple other guys who had transferred in when I did, who were from campus ministry backgrounds. And so we, we made that our place to go and hang out. We were the Johnson guys that, that would show up at, at the UT campus house there. So you came into Johnson already having this campus ministry mindset. Yep. It, it, it affected me. And I figured that there was nothing better I could do than try to affect other people. And the, it, I didn't realize it at the time, but ministry, it seems to me, is a lot about location, location, location. And it's not bad to be on, on the corner of Maine and, and First Avenue, but the changes are going to be made at the university. And so I think that I figured, either I figured well or I guessed well in realizing that campus ministry is what's going to shape the world. Uh, and I don't have any problem with the local church. It's just that I wanted to be where I could make the biggest difference. And if the biggest difference was made for me in a campus ministry setting, why not make that my, my plant? Hmm. So in campus ministry, I'm, I'm sort of curious to know more about that. I think our listeners would be too. Um, what are some of the challenges that you think are unique to campus ministry that, that maybe ministers or missionaries or whatever? I mean, you're facing a unique set of circumstances. What are some of those things? I don't want to say this too loud because there are other people in the house, but one of the <laughs> biggest problems at my now elevated age is dealing with immaturity. <laughs> so it's, it's hard for me to enter into conversations with people about things that I have no interest in, like Marvel movies or things like that. 
and, and I know that that's part of their lives. That's what they know and cherish. And I had things like that in my life, but it's difficult at times for me to, to have an introductory conversation with someone about a topic that I know nothing about that they know a lot about, like video games or superheroes. Uh, <laughs> so I got to tell you, that that's been a big struggle for me in the last five years is just coming to terms with my own age. Are, are you telling me that uh, campus minister Mike Luzatter doesn't play Rocket League? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I, was, I was having a discussion with one of the faculty members on the Florida campus, and he was talking about how he plays, you know, video games with other students. Of course, he's he's a little bit younger, but uh, yeah, he, he plays video games with the other students and such. And I was acquainted with Rocket League because my kids play it. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, we're talking about name IDs and all kinds of things you know, where we could hook up online. And uh, I, I really am an old man, Tyson, and it's sort of weird to believe. I didn't think that I was until. I've just come to accept the, the truth of, of reality. Does that hinder your ability to be an effective campus minister? I think it does. I don't want to say that really loudly again, but I think it does. Uh, it just does not give me an opportunity to have a, an immediate foothold in a conversation. Hmm. I think that there are campus ministers who have done well in their age, in their 60s and even 70s, without knowing you know the intricacies of a college student's life. But uh, that's just not been an easy thing for me to adapt to. So, so what do you do to establish relationships? with? Yeah, I'm really just trying to, I'm trying to find a point of contact for them that is easy to access so that I can get into a conversation with them of something that I think is spiritual and meaningful um, and biblical. And again, that's just, it's a little harder to do sometimes. Right. Are than, you... than it used to be, actually. So I used to stay up and play video games. I used to know the current movies and stuff. And I, I just don't. I'm not a good student that way. But still, you feel a call to this campus ministry. I imagine that you engage in some of the more challenging topics that are being taught in you know, college and maybe having to fight some of those worldview battles. Yeah, I think that's all the time. I think that's every conversation actually is dealing with the perception behind the conversation. And part of it's knowing how hard to, to talk back Mm. or or whether I should let that lie for a little bit. I don't always make good snap judgments about the way that I should should interact with, with people. And sometimes a 20-year-old really just needs to be flattened by an older person and say, you are being stupid and you need to stop. And sometimes that's completely inappropriate and counterproductive. And I'm doing a better job now of discerning the best way to, to handle conversations, but I've not always walked that line well. Uh, it's it's easy easy to be a bull in the china shop, but the bull in the china shop is usually going to cause more damage mm. than than help. So uh, I'm trying to walk delicately and to challenge them to push in certain areas and to prod in other areas without actually you know delivering a roundhouse kick that uh, that just might make them question everything and, and flee ultimately. But campus ministry is about the conversation, so this is all about engaging people in an important conversation that has eternal consequences. And I'm trying to get to that point with every every small little discussion that I have is to try to, to bring somebody to that point, whether I know them well or not. It's just trying, you're looking for the opening to ask the important questions. Yeah, yep. So uh, let, me, let me draw you back then to your Johnson journey. Uh, okay. You know, you came to Johnson's campus having already had some college experience. So you were a little bit out of the norm of others. Um, 
what are some of the experiences that stand out to you in your time at Johnson? And I'm thinking of experiences uh, socially, spiritually, uh, academically. I mean, what are some of those experiences that stand out? Don't incriminate yourself here. <laughs> well, I won't. There are some, <laughs> some things that I will not say. <laughs> uh, I don't know that I really have a great memory, Tyson, but there are some very, very vivid things that still are part of my brain right now about my, my Johnson years. This is, which actually is part of the homecoming 2022 uh, principle and the theme. I, I believe that a lot of our theology is developed not just from reading a textbook, but from the story that, through which we hear it and how we, we accept the story and therefore we accept the theology. And so a lot of things I learned were part of just growing there in that community. Uh, my roommate was a great guy. He was a freshman and he was as green as could be. He was not particularly a great student, but he was a great friend to the entire world. And we lived right across from the community bathroom on the third floor in Brown Hall. And so the whole world would stop by on their way to the bathroom or back and talk to me and my roommate. And it was just important, all these conversations. They didn't gather in anybody else's room on the floor except for ours <laughs> because we had the bathroom there. And we just had people in there talking all the time about nonsense or about importance. Uh, and I'm not particularly a social guy, but he was. And he would just, he would run court more or less uh, of his friends and just and, and to talk with people. I learned an awful lot from him and just his ability to to really find commonality with people and enjoy them. Uh, I remember Greek class very vividly. Lee Richardson was our, our professor for Greek. I learned an awful lot just from the exegesis of Greek words and classes. And, and he would stop in the middle of teaching us verb conjugation to tell us about how the intricacy of the story affected what we believe. Uh, very vividly, I remember reading through John chapter one in the gospels about John the Baptist hitting the scene. Some, some of that must've been the earliest Greek that we translated, but I didn't know that story about how they were, the Pharisees were coming down from Jerusalem and questioning John and asking if he was the Messiah. I remember very, very brilliantly thinking, I have never heard that they questioned John about being the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet. I had no idea what the prophet was, hmm. John chapter one, which comes from Deuteronomy 18. I had no clue what that was about. But I learned it there from Lee Richardson. Uh, that, that fall, Dr. Black died, and that was a big deal at the Johnson campus. I didn't quite get it. So John, Dr. Black was a very celebrated Old Testament professor at Johnson. I think he died in October. So I may have had him for a month and a half or two months, perhaps. But the whole community mourned this death in a way that I just I didn't understand. Uh, and Johnson scrambled to, to replace the classes that were being taught by him so that somebody else could teach them without interrupting the atmosphere of the school. And uh, so they, they really shuffled the deck there at the end of my first semester and beginning of my second semester to, to find professors. It seemed to me that Bob Martin was thrown into that, teaching some classes that he uh, hadn't prepared to teach perhaps, and just doing a good job. And I regret that I didn't respect Bob as much as I should have in the beginning. A couple of my stories from later on were that as my admiration for Bob Martin grew, I really began to see him as somebody who loved Jesus in a way that was emotive and affectionate instead of just cerebral. And uh, that was that was an impressive experience, I think, just to be able to, to listen to him. I'm not sure that he and I really had a, a personal conversation, but listening to him in class was important for me at that time and to see his, uh, his emotions in this. Did you have a, a close relationship with any particular faculty member? 
I'm not so sure that I had a close relationship with any of them. Uh, Dr. Mattingly was my favorite professor at Johnson. And I think that was probably because of his wit. Uh, he singled me out and harassed me from day one. And I think I enjoyed that. <laughs> Sounds like the Dr. Mattingly I know. Yep. He would, he would yell at us. And I was from Southern Illinois and he had a special name for Southern Illinois. And it was just one of those funny things. Incidentally, his son-in-law, one of the son-in-laws is from Southern Illinois. Huh. Adam Bean is from a town. Oh, that's right. From where I grew up. That's right. Carl Bridges was a great professor, and I didn't have him until I think my senior year, in fact. And I really wish that I had had an opportunity to take more of his classes early on. But again, it, it was small classes. It was just it was a certain wit that he had about him, and because the the, the classes were not so huge, we could have a have important conversations. It seems to me without disrupting what we needed to talk about. They were personal conversations, but they were important conversations. Hmm. I think I really gravitated toward those 10-person to 15-person classes that were at least attempted at the time. Uh, you know, we had several classes in PW203 where you'd have 45 or 75 people. Uh-huh. And none of those stand out to me as important. But the smaller ones where there was just a group of us up in Old Main, perhaps, really have been the ones that were that I would reflect on the most. I, I, could, I guess I could see that because in, in that kind of a class, you're having much more intimate dialogue. Yeah. How, how many years were you at Johnson? Yeah, so it took me three years to finish at Johnson. Okay. I graduated in 92 then, so I was there 89 through 92. You did two years at uh, Eastern Illinois, then you did three years at... Yep. Graduated in 92. Um, so when you left in 92, did you go straight into campus ministry at ETSU, or was there another part of your journey that we're missing? <laughs> yeah, there's a little gap there. Uh, graduating from from Johnson, I didn't start until January to look for a job. Uh, at the time, especially, it was really hard to get into a campus ministry of the restoration movement just because there weren't very many openings. A lot of it was raise your own support type of stuff that I, that was scary, frankly. Mm-hmm. Buzz Roberts from up in Pennsylvania was trying to get me interested in going up to Pennsylvania, but uh, I didn't have any connection really. And it just seemed to be far off and difficult to raise my own funds. Mm-hmm. Oddly, I put in an application at the campus ministry here at ETSU for a position they had open, but they turned me down pretty quickly. And so by <laughs> March, I was left looking for anything. Just happened to be that one of the professors knew a couple of Johnson alums who worked up at Southeast in, in Louisville and Southeast offered internships at the time that were 11 months long, I think. And so I decided that I would go and just get a little experience there and learn what that was about. Uh, I'd never been interested in big church type of stuff, and I still didn't see how that connected to campus ministry, but it was an opportunity that opened up for me. So my first year out of Johnson, I spent uh, at Southeast as an intern with the small groups guy and with the new members guy. I was an intern for two two of the ministers. So how did you find that experience, being a part of a, a mega church like that? It was it was really eye-opening. Uh, the church was twice as big as the town in which I'd grown up, <laughs> and it just it, there were a lot of things that they did that I didn't understand, but they did things well. And so, you know, back in the late eighties, early nineties, everybody was talking about Southeast and Southeast was, was really a monolith in the way that they did things, not just doing things big, but in doing them well. And I got to view that a little bit. Uh, there was a lot of training that was, that was part of this. And they allowed me to participate in, in quite a bit of this. They wanted me to see and experience as much as I could. It was really a fantastic opportunity. 
uh, that I got to have with them. At the end of that, I was still looking for campus ministry openings and couldn't find any. And uh, through the course of another Johnston grad, we had located a missions organization that was looking for people to plant in, in Ukraine. And so, uh, again, this woman, early 93, all kinds of things were happening as far as the former Soviet Union. And mm-hmm. I, I wasn't certainly paying attention to these kinds of things, but missiologists were paying attention to this kind of stuff. And there was a movement, a, a pretty vast people movement of Muslim folks that were being returned to Crimea from Middle Asia, whether it was Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan or one of those places that they've been deported. Uh, Stalin, because he's crazy, or was crazy, had deported an entire people group, Muslim people group, overnight in, I think it was 1941. He just loaded them all up on train cars and moved them from Crimea to Kazakhstan. And so through perestroika and some of this other stuff under Yeltsin, they were being allowed to return. And so some of the missiologists were paying attention to this. And particularly the group from Team Expansion was trying to, to load up a team of people to go to Crimea, to Simferopol specifically, to catch this Muslim people group as they returned and to be there for them and to minister to them. So I got caught up in that my second year out of Johnson. I, again, another phenomenal experience. Moved across uh, seas for a whole year, something I'd never intended to do. There's a group of 15 of us. A couple other guys were Johnson grads, Jeff Lynn and Scott Jackson. Scott was my roommate. He graduated just after I had. And then a lot of them were Kentucky grads or Cincinnati grads, but all of them were restoration movement folks that were part of this team that Team Expansion had assembled. So we all had our had our roles as we worked to reach out to this Muslim group that was being relocated to its ancestral territories for a year. Wow. That, uh, that I guess they were all uh, Russian speakers then? They were, yeah. And especially Crimea, this part of the current history, you know, how Russia has retaken Crimea. Uh-huh. But Crimea Russia's always had their talons in um, their paradise place of Crimea. And so nobody spoke U- Ukrainian, thankfully. And although the Muslims had their own um, languages, whether it was Cossack or Kurg or something like that, Russian was the common language that was used. So did you learn any of that? <laughs> I'm not sure how to answer that question. <laughs> uh, they would have gotten a lot more out of me if I'd learned Russian ahead of time. Uh-huh. But it was an opportunity that opened up. And so I went. My Russian was, and I, I just couldn't do it. And I, I tried really hard and ended up being the guy who could understand a lot of stuff, but couldn't speak it very well. That was me. And so I, I nodded a lot and smiled. And then I do the tedious things that other people didn't do. So I tried to learn it on the fly while I was there. Mm-hmm. Just It just was a lot harder than I expected. So th- did you see in your time there, did you see any converts out of that? Did you have any of those kinds of experiences? Okay, I got to tell you, yes. So my role with the group was not to be specifically with the Muslim uh, Tatar people. Uh-huh. My role was to, to be uh, an intermediary between them and the Ukrainians or Russians. So I was not always in the villages uh, as some of the other team members were. However, during that time, there were two or three that were baptized or and w- would come to our services or part of Bible studies. I've heard since then that there's been a pretty good Christian movement among these 
the, these folks, I haven't paid a whole lot of attention, but I've heard that there's a pretty good movement among them right now. And I really believe that it stems back to the initial time from 93, 94, probably. Mm, wow. Okay, so uh, what happened after that second year? Yeah, so I'd already made a commitment semi to some girl that I met at Johnson. And <laughs> we were not engaged at the time, but we were close enough that we could have been. And it, it was either time to fish or cut bait. And so I decided to fish. So we returned home and proposed, and we got married by October of 94. Uh, she had graduated from Johnson and had worked there in Knoxville in a couple of different areas. And so uh, we started living there in 94 and then quickly moved up to Evansville uh, after that. And then we were there for five years working in campus ministry at, at the University of Southern Indiana. Oh, so uh, they would finally consider you for campus ministry once you were married? Finally. <laughs> Finally, again, it was just, it was a hard niche to get into at the time because I think everybody thought it was a good gig. Nobody wanted to get out. You had to wait for somebody to die usually to get out or to start your own campus ministry. And, and I was just too terrified of doing that to, to launch on my own. So, okay. So how did you get then from the campus ministry in Southern Indiana to the campus ministry in Upper East Tennessee? <laughs> well, you keep asking the right questions. Uh, it's all about being married, Tyson. <laughs> okay. So the short part of the story is that my wife's sister lives here in Johnson City, Tennessee. She had come to Milligan. She'd married a local guy and they stayed in Johnson City. My wife then had always dreamed about being in the same place as her sister. And so during a fight late one night that we had, I'm sure I said something like, fine, I'll apply to every campus ministry position that's open in Tennessee. I think I said that actually verbatim. <laughs> and I knew that Sam Darden had been at UT for a million years and he wasn't interested in leaving. And I knew that there was a guy up at East, East Tennessee State that had been there for a while. And I was pretty sure that he wasn't leaving. And I got to tell you, before two or three months had passed, I got an email that said that uh, the guy was leaving ETSU and he had sent out a note to, to all the other campus ministers about this. So I looked at the guy I was working for or with at the time. I said, look, there's nothing against you, but I've got to apply for this job. I, I, this is a way of owing it to my wife to, to be honest with her about what's going on in, in ministry. So to be frank, we live in Johnson City, Tennessee. One of my kids was born here. We've been here for over 20 years simply because in a rash moment, I made a promise to my <laughs> wife to move to Tennessee if we could. I don't regret it, by the way. Right, right. I'm grateful that we're that that that's that's a good disclaimer. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you said your wife was a graduate then of Johnson, right? She Tell was me Jamie Davis. She had come in in '86. She's a year older than I am. She graduated in '90 uh, with a counseling degree from Johnson, and then had stayed in Knoxville just because she wanted to be near her sister. And there were some openings for her in a counseling type of field, so she worked there in the city for a while before we got married. She now works up here in the school system in Johnson City. She serves as the secretary for one of the, the elementary schools here and does a great job. That's exactly the job that she was born to do. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's a perfect person for that job. And so how many kids you have? Yeah, we have two children. Uh, our oldest, Hannah, is a recent grad of Milligan University. Actually, she graduated from Milligan College uh -huh. back in the spring and was really excited to do that. Um, she really, really, really wanted to go to Milligan, and I don't know why. 
and she was one of these children who was sort of perfect in every way and wanted nothing, never asked for anything except to go to Milligan. So we had to concede on that. Mm -hmm. uh, she just recently graduated with a children's ministry degree and is looking for a spot right now to plug in. Oh, our son is a junior at Johnson right now in the education program, looking to be an elementary school teacher and doing pretty well. He's a good student, um, works in the dishroom. He loves scrubbing dishes, apparently, but he's very <laughs> diligent when it comes to his classes as well. So we know to give him space and time to get all of his um, projects and assignments completed. Well, that's great. I mean, he'll be he'll be a hot commodity because we don't have a whole lot of male teachers coming out of the schools. Well, good. Pretty stuff. excited about both of them. They both have been are good kids. Both have kingdom mindsets. Both intend to serve in some way, and we couldn't be more excited about that. Well, keeping that faith moving forward in your family—that's a wonderful thing. And uh, I appreciate your your transparency about why you're in Upper East Tennessee. That's a, <laughs> that's a blessing. Okay, so I wanted to ask you another question, and you sort of touched on it earlier in our discussion, but. Uh, you mentioned uh, the theme of Homecoming 2022. So for our guests who do not know, Mike Luzadder is the president of the 2022 Alumni Association. And the president of the Alumni Association is tasked with uh, coming up with a theme for Homecoming, uh, arranging who the guest speakers will be and what the overall structure will be for Homecoming. And so, uh, Mike, since you sort of touched on that earlier in our discussion, I'd like you to just go ahead and Talk a little bit now about, uh, you You had mentioned your theme uh, related to a story. So uh, why, don't, why don't you tell the guests a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, this is sort of a great opportunity that I had not expected. And when it arose, I was a bit terrified as to what to do with, with creating a homecoming for Johnson. That seemed to be a little bit bigger a task than I was ready for. But just in considering where I'd come from and what I knew, the whole element of story seem to rise to the top, uh, I've been affected by people who have shared their lives with me or who have communicated an important truth to me, not directly, but more by a story. Now, sometimes it's analogy, but sometimes it's really just the sharing of a real story of their life that happens to, that happens to affect what I, what I know and do. Some of these, of course, have been professors or, or preachers, but some of them have just been friends. And so uh, the concept really is about how, how about how about how our theology is affected by the stories that we know and understand and believe. It seems to me that this would have been a part of the way that the Old Testament figures would have worked. I, I don't imagine them sitting around a campfire at night and trying to expound some of the difficulties. Uh, they might have, but more often, it seems to me they were probably telling a story. We find this, of course, in the Gospels a lot. When someone asks a question of Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't say, that guy's your neighbor. He tells them the story that we remember. And almost the whole world, Christian and not, knows the story that Jesus tells. Stories have communicated belief to us, have cemented and reaffirmed belief for us. And so the whole process of determining a theme came down to how the story affects us or to, be, to distill it further, the story of our belief. Hmm. So through the course of Homecoming 2022, we're going to be challenged to look at our stories and to communicate our stories in a better way, to know what our stories really are, to be able to, to verbalize. Uh, in campus ministry, I've, I've told the students, the Christian students who are part of our group, that they need to be able to, in three or four sentences, say what they believe. 
Well, obviously they can't fit a story into that, but they need to be able to tell why that they believe as well, which is part of their story. They need to share, well, I believe these things because this has happened to me or because this truth makes sense to me uh, and because I've, I've experienced that. So stories are an important part of our theology. And we want to accentuate that. Hmm. That sounds great. So um, what do you have in mind as far as uh, speakers for Homecoming 2022? So a couple of guys have really been important to me in this regard. Uh, one of them I got to know through campus ministry circles. Mark Nelson also was a graduate from Johnson, but he was there before me. We didn't overlap. But when I was at the University of Southern Indiana, he and his wife were serving up at Purdue University. And he was just a, an important speaker at a lot of events that we would have uh, that we would do together. He'd also been challenged by Tommy Oaks to pay attention to the story. Tommy Oaks was a campus minister actually here at East Tennessee State University early on in the 80s. And he went on to be an, an important preacher in the restoration movement, but he's utilized the story in, in important and great ways. So Mark is going to be our keynote speaker for this. Uh, he has helped to found Crossings Church there in Knoxville 15, 16 years ago, perhaps, and has recently come on staff to work through a grant program that Johnson has. But he's going to help develop our idea of communicating our story and doing that well. And we hope to use then some other people including Tommy Oaks, as a bit of, a, here's a way to do it. Here's a model for storytelling. Here's how the story can be utilized to best effect. Excellent. Well, it sounds like it's going to be a great event. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it's a little bit different from our theme this year being one to, to now next year being uh, the story. Uh, let's see, how, how, do you, how do you phrase that? What's the actual theme? The story of our belief. The story of our yeah. belief, right. I really, really thought hard about following up one with two. And then I just decided that that probably wasn't such a great idea. I didn't want to be number two. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably a wise decision. Okay. So uh, the story of our belief, I I, I really respect that. I mean, I I think I'm right there with you that I've found that some of the most uh, compelling, I would say, I don't don't know if you want to say arguments, but some of the most compelling evidence for what we see and hear in scripture and and what we learn theologically comes through stories. Jesus, obviously, in the example of telling a story to communicate a deeper truth. Yeah, let me retell a story that I told you earlier, Tyson, Mm -hmm. but this this is my default right now for how stories affect us. Uh, Again, I I paid little attention to Bob Martin in the beginning of my tenure at Johnson. Every senior, of course, was required to take what we call systematic theology, which, by the way, is an awful name for a class. And that was sort of a capstone senior project thing. And so all of the seniors were herded into this room. And I really believe that I just walked in late the first day of class and all the seats in the back, 14 rows were taken. And so I was forced to sit up front uh, and I really could, I could smell Bob. I was that close. I mean, I could, I could hear him breathing. <laughs> Bob had a very unimpressive presentation. He would simply sit down at his desk and he would read his notes and he would look up on occasion but it was rare. Uh, and he would read through his notes, just page after page. And, and it wasn't just that it was monotone. It, he, he inflected, he, he really wanted to teach this stuff. But part of this lesson that on a certain day was about the righteousness of God and about God's justice and about how, how these two things can, can go together. And he was telling the story about his granddaughter dying as part of his communication of this high theology. I don't know if he spent 15 minutes telling the story. It seemed to me that the story lasted forever. It was painful. It was hard. And because I was sitting right next to him, I watched it as he cried, as he told the story. 
it may have been palpable for everybody else in class to to recognize this as well. But I was sitting right next to this man as he's trying to communicate God's important truths. And he's doing this by telling about the death of a, I think it was a three-year-old and how deeply it affected him. Again, we come to God because of our stories. We take these experiences that we know and we try to come to terms with them. We try to, to make some kind of sense about them. And we can go and we'll flip through the Bible and we'll listen to other people teach and preach to us. But really it's about the way that we compartmentalize or, or discern what's being communicated through our lives that affects what we believe. In the last 20 years of my life, I have come to understand the importance of this, and not just in stories that, that are Christian stories, but in the way that, that even novels have affected us. Uh, I was challenged to read through Kaim Potok's books, which are about Jewish kids growing up in New York City right after World War II. And the painfulness of some of that stuff is just so palpable as these, as these kids analyze their own faith and try to come to terms with what they've been taught by their rabbis and by their friends concerning what they believe. And it allowed me in an objective way to consider my own story because I'm looking at somebody else's story. But because it wasn't the same as mine, uh, I could I had a bit more of objectivity in the way that I in the way that I analyzed my own story. I appreciate that theme, and I think that's going to work well. So look forward to get to spend the homecoming 2020. I really um, am okay, looking so, forward to this. I, I think that this is going to be phenomenal. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it just as well. Um, so you mentioned uh, books that you had read that sort of helped solidify this idea in your mind as well. Do you have any uh, books that you would recommend people to read? Yes. Short list off the top of my head. I read Siddhartha many years ago, the Herman Hesse novel. I, I did not understand Buddhism until I read Siddhartha. And I'm not sure that it, Buddhism made sense to me, but I understood what they believed through that. The Chosen is one of the, the important books by Kaim Potok, but the one that was really painful and, and poignant to me was My Name is Asher Lev by Kaim Potok. I'm currently reading a book called The Apostle by Sholem Ash. Uh, it's a Jewish man who wrote about the Apostle Paul's life. And I guess it was considered scandalous at the time. I'm not finished with that book yet to give it a hearty recommendation, but it really puts the Apostle Paul, it puts meat on the bones of the story behind him and his journeys and, and preaching. Hmm. Uh, I read a book years ago in seminary called The Damnation of Theron Ware, which doesn't sound like a very nice title, but that's the way the title came about. And it was about a Methodist preacher who loses his faith through the course of... Um, through the course of pastoring his church, but it was fascinating to read how this man really gives up everything he knows and believes because of his passions. And I was, I was hit over, over the head squarely by that. So that's the sort of the short list. Oh, there's another one. Uh, Cry the Beloved Country, story about two South African men who are drawn together by a murder uh, where one man's son murders the other man's son. Mm. And this, this forgiveness is there. Uh, there are very few books to bring me to tears, but, uh, but that one did. Wow. It was, it was, it was moving toward the end. The last question I have for you is this, and I've been asking all of our Sojournal podcast guests to answer this question. So I'm curious to know what you will answer. If you had one minute to give any message at all to everyone in the world. And what I mean is the world is your audience. What would that message be? One minute to give a message to the world. 
what would that message be? Now, before you answer or while you think about that, let me tell you that this Sojournal podcast is a production of the Alumni Relations Office at Johnson University and is brought to you by the Alumni Association. So whether you graduated from Central Florida Bible College, Johnson Bible College, Florida Christian College, or Johnson University, you are a part of the alumni family. Join the Alumni Association and help encourage and equip alumni and students as they pursue kingdom-focused vocations. And you can learn more about the Alumni Association at johnsonu.edu forward slash alumni. So Mike Luzatter, are you ready to provide the answer to this one critical question? One minute to give a message to the world. Uh, It would simply be this. The evidence for Jesus as the Messiah is overwhelming and should be considered by all because salvation is good news that God gives to us. And it's not just reserved for a single group of people like the Jews or the Americans. It's for all the people of the world that God has allowed us to participate in this potential for eternity with him. Good words and a good call to action. You need to look into it. Well, very good. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today and for uh, talking about your journey. I mean, I really appreciate hearing how the Lord has led you through all of these various steps. And uh, I appreciate your transparency with us about how you got to your current vocation and uh, really looking forward to what the Lord's going to do uh, through you and through the guest speakers at Homecoming 2022, where we talk about the story of our belief. Thank you, Tasha, for the opportunity. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. So uh, we will look forward to seeing you next time. And uh, please tune in to the Sojournal podcast each Monday, dropping at noon Eastern Standard Time. We'll see you next time.